I met Alan Hall this past spring in Australia at the International Features Conference, which is a gathering that convenes about 75 producers of audio, documentary, and feature work from all over the world. We talked a lot about radio that week, but we also talked a lot about music, everything from punk to experimental to classical music. And while we didn't always agree on things, I generally gained the sense that music of all flavors and structures is very important to him. But it wasn't until I got back to Chicago and listened to some of his work that I realized how effectively and skillfully he infuses this appreciation into the radio programs he makes. Not all of Alan's work is musically themed, but all of it has this certain musicality to it. It's a unique and provocative approach to making radio that I think stands alone in style. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. He's won some very prestigious prizes that are given out in Europe, including the Pre-Italia and the Pre-Bohemia for his work. So, from London, please welcome Alan Hall. We'll talk with us about Points on a Curve, radio in its own time and place. Thank you. There are a lot of you. I just need to move this up, I suspect. Hello. Um, I think it's going to be a very vibrant couple of days, this, isn't it? And I've actually now figured out what this means, points on a curve, radio in its own time and place, because, you know, I've got the whole thing back time to finish at 3 o'clock. So we're going to have to go very fast through this. Um, but let me begin properly. Uh, the subtitle is clear enough, radio in its own time and place. And this event, appropriately enough, allows us to reflect upon radio in its own, in its own time and in its own place. It's a rare opportunity, I imagine, for many of us to step back from the day-to-day, -day, from the production line, from the fixing and recording, the wheeling and the dealing of program making, to step back and to, to give a moment and a few words to our work in this, uh, what I believe is a priceless medium, radio. So thank you for this opportunity, Third Coast, inaugural gathering of the Third Coast Festival. Now, I should explain something of what I mean by the surtitle, Points on a Curve. Well, if you like, it's an excuse. It helps me uh, allow this presentation to become something of a ramble. Um, we're not necessarily heading for 3 o'clock or even 10 past 3 in a straight line. I'm hoping to bend time somewhat, to take us out of real time, that real time which, as radio producers, tick-tocks relentlessly, mercilessly in our professional ears, and to take us on an arcing trajectory over the next 70 minutes or so, stretching time, compressing time. I just pray it doesn't stand still for anyone. My thoughts are likely to wander a little, but there will be some distraction. The points on this curve will be audible, a few clips, extracts from radio productions that I hope you'll find defeat this relentless TikTok and create their own time, their own place. At least that's the ambition. Some of these clips will be from programs that I've made, others from programs that I wish I'd made. Uh, but to start, we visit Chicago. Excuse me. A few years ago, a revered elder statesman of BBC feature-making, Piers Plowright, some of you may have heard of him, asked me to help with the music for a production he was planning. It was called The Night Stairs, a 45-minute meditation on prayer, stairways to heaven and elsewhere, the night, tower blocks, skyscrapers, 
dark deeds and nocturnal hauntings. Our collaboration worked in a classic BBC manner. At the time, I was on the staff of the BBC in London, and Piers was a year or so off retirement. We were courteous, respectful, rather ineffectual. We always held the door open for one another's ideas, after you, oh no, after you. Uh, nothing much was done until the uh, SM, the studio manager, the mixing engineer, took control. But soon after, Piers and I worked again on another program. The BBC was very keen on collaborations at this time, whereas actually I'm rather a control freak. Um, show me a radio producer who isn't, actually. But this second collaboration, uh, in which we do it properly, it brought us to Chicago, and it was sunny, not in the least chilly or windy. We were searching for glimpses of a long-dead blues pianist, Jimmy Yancey. Piers had heard one of his few recordings, a three-minute track called At the Window, and this had opened our ears to the south side, to the Sears Tower, the L Comiskey Park, Comiskey Park, where Yancey worked in his day job on the ground staff. Okay, this is, um, that's my mother and father. That's me. This is his brother. This is his sister. Here's Aunt Stella. Mama. That's him. Right here. I had to put a big picture in here. stations and on the cable station 19 they had the Jimmy Yancey and I said that's my uncle's record you know and then when they said the end it was Jimmy Yancey had played this, this one song into a groove and he was happy with the sounds that he was making you'd see this grin come on his face I know my auntie told me he did too that he never did take up piano lessons played by ear I guess you know. 
It was an old piano that I had. So uh, Jimmy's playing on it. it was the first time it occurred to me that it'd be nice to have the autograph of people who played on the piano. And I asked him if he'd consent to scratching his name. And Jimmy was upset about having to scratch on a piano. And so he didn't use the double M as we ordinarily do. And he spelled it J-I-M-I-E. Jimmy. Here we go. Let's get loose. Come on out. Yancey, uh, lived in a decrepit, rather run-down part of town. They were on the second floor of a brick building. They entered into a living room. I and kind of drew a uh, sketch of my recollection of the apartment. And there were three windows, one facing directly onto 35th Street, and uh, two that were kind of angled looking out at 35th Street. Aunt Stella used to watch watch us for her while she worked. And I think my Uncle Jimmy had a, a piano head mirror on it. It was an old upright. And she said uh, every night at work she'd be thinking about that mirror getting broke by one of us and, messing uh, with that piano. That uh, piano had a blue glass mirror on the front of the piano. She was so and afraid was, uh, that that piano, like a mirror pop, was going to get broke. That they just word her to death at work when she would go and leave her, leave her several ain't stuff. So she said, I just had to quit that job, girl, come on, keep y'all myself. Because I would just be too upset at work thinking that somebody going to break that mirror on that piano. The opening sequence of At the Window with uh, Yancey's niece and great-niece and a few old disciples used to hang around his apartment. It was made in 1998 with Piers Plowright when he'd retired and I'd resigned from the BBC. But what he and I shared and found, if you like, mutually endorsing was a, a great conviction that a story, a subject, is not necessarily always best served by being approached head-on. We kind of curved our way towards Jimmy Yancey. He's placed in the frame there by his niece, flicking through some old photographs. But then we leave the interior and travel above and sort of through the city, somehow through the memory, this is the idea, through 50 years or so that have passed since Yancey's death. And then hopefully, as the program runs its course, taking a three-minute piece of music and making it a 30-minute program, the listener holds a sense of then together with a sense of now and then can somehow skip between the two. 
I should say this was all done instinctively. Neither peers nor I expressed out loud any of our thoughts about this approach. This approach. I don't think that even occurred to me then. It was a question of listening to the raw material, rather as Robert mentioned this morning. Um, and in this case, the material was collected in blues clubs and baseball grounds. It was quite a taxing trip. Um, it seemed to compel us to treat it in a certain way. And in planning the program, our, our, collaborative, our collaborative relationship had evolved. Peers drew diagrams and pictures with pianos and swirling lines. And I rather neurotically listed all the ins and outs and the durations of everything. But together, the kind of macro and the micro, uh, it seemed to work out. But that instinct, I still haven't really articulated what it consists of. In radio, we lack the theoretical language our colleagues in some other areas have access to. We're often unsure how to discuss our methods and objectives. And more than that, I suspect many of us lack the will or the inclination to think and talk in an abstract way about what it is that we do, why we put that speaker there, why the music has to carry on until this point. And I guess especially us British think this, we hold a deep suspicion of anything intellectual and the inability to speak in a plain, straightforward way. So excuse me if I err from that. Um, but our sense of what works as a cue, a junction, an edit, a fade, it's, it's more likely to be unspoken than empirical. And so it was with, with Piers and myself, except for this recognition of what he called the heart. He'd approached me originally after hearing one of my pieces of adventurous radio, and I put that in inverted commas. In the UK, we even lack the terminology, uh, the terminology for crafted programs that aren't necessarily conventional clip-link-clip type documentaries or, or features. Elsewhere, such programs might be called radiophonic compositions, Hirschstürker, earpieces, radio art even, capital A, cap well, capital R first, I guess, capital R, capital A. Or, as one Australian producer put it rather despairingly, a musicalized sound text feature. <laughs> if you don't mind, I'll be content to call it adventurous radio, and hopefully that isn't something that only exists in a ghetto late at night for listeners with headphones melted to their ears. Though I suspect it was late at night, possibly with his cans on, that Piers had heard the transmission of a program I'd made about Knoxville, Tennessee. You'll notice a theme emerging here, Chicago, Knoxville. The program was called Knoxville Summer of 1995, and it was broadcast in an occasional series on BBC Radio 3, that's the classical music and culture station. The series was called Between the Ears. This is a kind of showcase for mostly homegrown, occasionally foreign, adventurous, musicalized sound text features. In Knoxville, which predates um, both the Yancey program and, and the Nightstairs, which I mentioned, I was laying out a number of the ideas, the notions about broadcasting and about a sense of radio time that have intrigued me since. The idea was to present uh, a recording of Samuel Barber's orchestral aria, I don't know if anyone knows it, Knoxville, summer of 1915, very beautiful, and to place this alongside documentary elements about the piece and then embed them all in a soundscape of the city as I found it in the summer of 1995. So in a way, I wanted to present three programs simultaneously as layers in a single production. There was the musical performance, a mid-century mono recording with Eleanor Stever singing, a city soundscape, and then a feature about the artists whose work was being featured, 
Uh, that's to say Samuel Barber, the composer, famous for the enduring adagio, rather aloof, cultivated fellow, and James Agee, the poet, film critic, writer, and alcoholic. It's Agee's words, a prose poem, about an idyllic childhood summer that Barber sets for a soprano in this work, and they're words that resonate with a sense of America, at least for a non-US citizen. They're rich in Americana, with the sounds of an adored, safe, homely town. Cicadas on a summer's evening, the passing clash of the streetcar, the creaking of rocking chairs on porches. The text was published as a foreword to Agee's novel, A Death in the Family, which won a Pulitzer Prize, and it captures something common, I think, to us all, a universal truth about childhood, about loss, and a remembered experience. The poem and the piece of music both evoke a particular state, I believe, in, in the reader and the listener, and the program, I felt, had to aspire to this same state, a state of mind or spirit that's shared, and although in some ways rather mundane, also rather precious. Scratch the surface of the everyday and reveal something rather valuable. It's always been my kind of working assumption. And I wanted to have this sense of a moment, this shared moment, cross the century from the 1915 of Agee's memory through the 30s and 40s when the words and the music were written, right through to 1995, when I briefly visited the city and spent time in the slightly arty district of Fort Sanders and found it was much changed and perhaps not unsurprisingly much the same. Everyone's got parties going on right underneath my window. Just about every day of the week. Nobody goes to sleep till 2. R58. Good. It's busy at night for the police. And he said no living, that the artist was a deadly enemy of society. And so he had a sense that the purpose of the artist was... A lot of very talented people who live around here. A lot of painters, a lot of musicians, craftspeople. Any change y'all can help us out with, we sure appreciate it. In the 1950s, we were described as the largest dry town in America. We still did not have uh, legal alcohol. We just just weak beer is, is all that was. As far as preparing for the role of James Agee in the movie that we made, in a way, I was already playing that role, or I was already immersed in it. He was a, a bottle a day man, as John Houston said. So um, I I was drinking a bit of whiskey. Can't even walk on the mall up here. Can't even walk Who on the mall. Who can't see any artistic endeavor as frivolous? As an artist, as a musician, I realize that I am fortunate to live in a town where the arts are funded as well as they are. On the other hand, I get upset with the hypocrisy of it all. Sisters an artist, she's living at home. Brothers a singer, he's out on the road. There's my mama, baby's on One is an artist. He is living at home. He's living at home. One is a musician. One is a musician. She is living at home. One is my home. mother who is good to me. One is my father who is good to me. He was a bohemian. He was very much of the people. He very much identified with common people.
single car crash left 16 year old dad their car ran off the side and crashed into a bridge support and if i come in the alley here i'll be in the rear 911. yes ma'am by some chance uh, here they are the all on service. this earth and who shall ever tell the sorrow of being on this earth and who shall ever tell the sorrow of being on this earth lying on quilts on the grass in a summer evening among the sounds of the night among the sounds of the night from the knoxville journal and tribune may 19th 20th and 21st of 1916 found dead on clinton pike pinned under an automobile on a lonely stretch of clinton pike 13 miles west of the city james ag age 38 years of 1505 highland in memory of my father, Barber's dedication it was being written while his father was dying. James Ogie's father, of course, died in uh, April of 1916. He was uh, killed in a, in a car wreck uh, just north of town. Some have uh, claimed that alcohol was involved in the, uh, in, in the wreck. I don't want to die like James Agee In the back of some taxi on the run May God bless my people, so my uncle, my aunt, my mother, my good father. Oh, remember them kindly in their time of trouble of just and in the hour of their taking away. Mr. Agee is survived by his widow and by two small children, Rufus, and his James, age six, and Emma, age four. There's a deliberate ambiguity in the treatment that extract is from towards the end of the program, and I have to, you have to excuse playing bleeding chunks. I know it's a very unsatisfactory way of hearing things. You don't necessarily get into the rhythm of the program, but I'm leaving the extracts quite long, so hopefully you can catch up. I, mean, I split the music. It's a 15-minute piece of music at certain spots and, and then allowed the soundscape and the docu documentary elements to take over. Place, time, character, mood. They blur the he, the I. They might refer to A.G., they might refer to Barber. It might be the boy uh, at the center of the memory. I and mean, it's a memory made all the more poignant by the early death of his father. It might even be the mayor or the folk singer or any of the other residents of the town who offered their thoughts and kindly also read from the extracts from the A.G. text. These are then sort of overlapped and cascaded one after another as if the moment is spread among them and across time, shared 
universal. And of course, it's wholly contrived. Few residents had heard of AG, and only two, <clears throat> both musicians, knew of the Barber piece. One of them, Emily Shane, is the singer of the folk version. But the truth was, it, was there in their words. It was also there in the posture, the expression of a father whom I found sitting on a porch in AG's old neighborhood with his son, a boy roughly the same age as AG as a child, and Rufus, the character from A Death in the Family. And this fellow rather simply told me of his grandparents, who'd quite by chance lived in the same house as the ages. Things change and they stay the same, I guess, he said. My curve now bends towards its next point, and what those two extracts from my own programs reveals is, is this intimate association and responsiveness to music. I expect this comes from uh, my own inept skills as a performer and as a composer. When I made Knoxville, I was a staff music producer at BBC Radio in London, as often in the studio recording musicians as on location interviewing people about music. I'd studied music at university, even spent a couple of years proving that, no, I had no talent as a composer. But then with Knoxville came the realization that I was inclined to hear all the elements of conventional documentary making, many of which I also produced, you know, the Clip Link, Clip Link programs. I listened to these elements for more than their informational qualities. I imagine we all do. The nuances of language, the, the, the quiver in a voice that's about to reveal something new, the telling texture of an atmosphere or brutal rush of a passing truck. I was beginning to find I was listening to everything for its musical potential. All sound was, for me, aspiring to the condition of music. This reinvention of a familiar wheel makes for a specialized brand of adventurous radio production. But it was also proving quite successful with listeners and with the people in suits in positions of influence. You know who you are. Of course, there were many others doing similar things, always have been, not necessarily in the UK, but in corners of Scandinavia, elsewhere in Europe, the States, Australia. And a more recent example of a musicalized, not so sound text feature comes from the ABC in Sydney and the uh, admirable showcase they have there for adventurous radio, the listening room. This example is more conspicuously musical, I think, than anything I've produced, but that's because it's made by a real musician, a real composer, Sherry Delise. She went to England to make a radio piece about Derek Jarman's garden. Jarman's the English film director who died an AIDS-related death. He built a remarkable garden in the bleak landscape of Dungeness on the south coast. And Sherry's response to it, to this garden, was to let the landscape dicta dictate to her both the sound content, pebbles, surf, clanking halyards, shingle, and the form, a framework of unfolding phrases that overwhelm the mechanical tick-tock of real time. First, taste the salty sea air of the opening, and then this will fade then into the final section, the rhythms of breathing and the sea. It's a wooden house made of shiplap, painted black with tar. From the front, it looks like a kind of child's drawing of a house. Two little windows, a little door in the middle, and an off-center chimney. It's called Prospect Cottage, Prospero's last place. When Derek moved here, one of his first acts was to break Prospero's wand from the tempest, put it over his knee and snapped it in two. Prospero finally come to rest. 
the highest points for a mile in every direction. There are no trees in Dungeness at all. And birds use these poles as surrogate trees. Tree creepers and flycatchers, weird things, saying this is my territory. Big piece of chain off a boat. Very heavy, it's about the limit of all I can carry. And it encircles and protects the iris in the middle. And then particularly with Derek losing his sight, that as you walk through it, you can imagine that all the smells, the lavenders and the santalinas. Poem on the house. The poem on the house is um it's swollen and deformed with weathering. So now it's illegible. Oh my god! Oh, it's so beautiful! Completely small, but they're soft, and when they've been tired, they become rock hard. Tapping away, like this through the wall. Sun? Yeah. Possibly. Busy old fool, a moony sun. Why dost thou dost through windows and through curtains call on us? Yeah. And because I've transcribed all of Derek's diaries, so I know how his handwriting went. Looks more like mushrooms hanging off Yeah, or something. It's beautiful when it's tarred. But it's a yearly job. It takes a couple of days. Sherry Delise's Jarman's Garden, compressed from 15 minutes down to four. Dangerously postperannual, I would have thought. But Sherry, Sherry says she found herself composing a piece of time with the periodic waves and the pulses of the electric piano. And then what I hear is finally in that sequence the exhalations, the final exhalations of, of Derek Jarman as we leave his garden. Jarman's Garden is sound art. It's some way from regular radio. It's some way from what most of us can expect to spend our days doing, some way towards a piece of music. 
but it emphasizes, I think, only by degree the capacity for our shared medium, radio, to shift the pulse of time, to insist on a different rhythm, and literally to enter a different age, a different time. All three of my points on the curve so far do this. And the next is, again, one of my own making, and it returns us to the conventional documentary, the clip link type of documentary. The brief here was pretty straightforward. Radio 4, BBC's news and speech network, commissioned an edition of the Archive Hour, a weekly hour of archive. It was about the bombing of the city of Coventry during the Second World War. And the Coventry Blitz, as it was called, was broadcast on the 60th anniversary of a night no one in Britain at the time would forget, November the 14th, 1941. There had been raids on British cities before then, of course, uh, the London Blitz was a continuing nightmare. And there'd been attacks on the manufacturing heart of the country, the Midlands cities of Birmingham, Wolverhampton, Coventry. But nothing compared with that moonlight, moonlit night in, in mid-November. Eleven hours of relentless bombing on a small city, built essentially on an old medieval street plan with factories, utilities found side by side with tightly packed residential areas and shops, and the cathedral. My documentary was to use existing audio archive of the aftermath, interviews with firefighters, air raid wardens, rescue workers. A number of these were recorded in the days immediately following. The grief of the city at the loss of so many lives, in fact, it turned out to be only 560. These things are relative. And the grief at the destruction of the beautiful ancient cathedral was shared across the country. The king was there within hours. There were also written archive sources documenting the event, and I found some survivors. Some of these had told their stories often over the intervening lifetime, but one or two had only just come to the point of being able to express and share their experiences after long and, and secretly unhappy lives spent in the shadow of that night. I also interviewed historians about the exact sequence of events, and with my presenter, Charles Wheeler, one of the BBC's finest TV news correspondents, he was based in Washington for a long time and was himself a D-Day veteran. We dealt with all the myths of the raid. Did Churchill sacrifice the city to protect from the Germans our knowledge of Enigma? Did uh, the troops appear so rapidly on the streets to help, to help the victims or, in fact, to stop potential civil unrest? And then what of the casualties? What of the UK's first wartime mass grave? But central to the program was the night of the raid, and this I tried to reconstruct through the archive clips and the testimonies of survivors, starting with people getting home from school and from work and then marking the passing hours as the blitz continued right through till dawn. Time passing and time remembered, and time recorded in the log of one of the fire watchers. This was read for me by a wonderfully flat-toned Coventry archivist. It's unemotional but very weighty. And I tried to stretch the real broadcast time available about half an hour out of an hour-long documentary and to leave that clip-link, clip, fact-driven journalism of the opening and the end and to enter the time frame of the night's experience. And one final thought uh, before we hear the extract. It consists almost entirely of voices telling their individual stories. There's a sprinkling of archive audio with that accompanying sound texture, but there are no effects. <clears throat> There's nothing tricksy, no droning planes, no actuality of collapsing buildings, sirens, or ACAC fire. And just a dribble of music, a scrap of Beethoven to frame this central sequence 
The German code name for the operation was Moonlight Sonata. This is a, a, the logbook of the subversive enemy action squad number one post. It starts off at uh, 1840 on Thursday the 14th with Bramwell on duty. Uh, talks about the public warning at 1912 and then goes on to talk about the bombing Schoolboy Maurice Rattigan lived in Whitley, just southeast of the city centre. That particular night, my father came home early. My father didn't always come home early, he liked to drink. And he often just go to the pub before he got home. But he came home early that night, it was a full moon, and he said, You better get re- ready to get down to shelter early tonight because there's sure to come. They like the full moon, not the London full moon. We were prepared, the signs went just after seven, and we went down to the shelter. They were all started straight away, at 20 past seven, the first bombs and that. We're going to see. Strike up the band with Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney. Eddie Bell was living to the east of the city centre. And halfway through it, there was a lot of rumpus and toing and froing uh, outside the cinema, you know. And then the manager came out and put the lights up and he says, there's an air raid on it, he says. And he says, it's a bit fierce. He says, so anybody wants to leave, go out now, he says. And if anybody wants to say, I'm going to put the, leave the last couple of reels on, and I'm off home anyway. So, coming from north of the border, having paid my money, I decided that I would stop and see the film, he said. There was um, an Anderson shelter in the garden, which used to get lots of water in. Doreen Jacobs was living in Highfield Road, just east of the city centre. Mother had three of us children at that time. I was the eldest, and I was six the following January. And I had a brother who's 18 months younger than me, and an 11-month-old sister. So it wasn't very wise anyway to take a baby down into the shelters. Mother had um, some kind of bed put into the cubby hole under the stairs, or we called it the glory hole. We were all under there the night of the Blitz. 1930, in a circle of incendiaries catching the cathedral, palace yard, Broadgate, Barclays and Owen Owen, all round the tower... And that particular night, it just went on and on. You got the anti-aircraft guns going. It's just one continual noise. Jim Woolley lived a mile or so north of the city centre, but being in a, a cellar underneath, it muffled it. Bang, 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 and we thought, well, we've got some very nasty air. You could hear the bombs coming down, and my father and mother were crying at this point and praying, praying a lot. And my father had said, this one's for us. And remember that quite clearly. You can hear it at one point, but then it goes very quiet. 
1940, cathedral blazing fiercely, HEs all over and around the city centre. You're immersed in this film, you see. And then all of a sudden, when lights go up, you come back to reality. And when you went outside that cinema, it was real all right. There were flames up high up, to, what, 20, 30 feet. There were houses with roofs knocked off them. There was shrapnel raining down on, on, the, the, on the tiles of the roofs. Now and again, a searchlight would go up, you know. But they were droning over, and it was a brilliant moonlight night. They called it Harvest Moon, Hunter's Moon or something like that. My next memory is of a man calling into us and actually coming inside to take us outside. And some people that stayed where they were in the houses, because there was gas, gas all about, quite a few people actually died through being gassed in their own homes. So in lots of ways, that man getting us out probably most likely saved our lives that night. But don't know who he is. As the night went on, it just got simply worse and worse. The bombs just never stopped. You could near the near ones, near to you. Because the, the, the crown, you could feel the vibration from them all. It was terrible. And he said, oh, we can't stay here. It's too dangerous. Because incendiary bombs were falling on the first few houses in Highfield Road. So they were really well alight. So he took us down to a street shelter. The brick shelters that were actually built on the, on the road. And that was packed with people. And then we seen people come in with blood all down their faces, people being carried in. Oh, we knew what was in for then. We knew we got it to come, you know what I mean? 21.30, building shook many times, fires are being allowed to burn, developers' fire brigades have insufficient water pressure owing to the mains being hit. Well, on the night of the raid, I just happened to be down at the post on duty. I'm a volunteer ambulance driver. Of course, as soon as the calls come, we get to our ambulances at once. It wasn't very pleasant driving, certainly, with the gunfire going and all the bombs dropping round us. And we certainly saw a few horrors with people running for shelter, bombs dropping and killing them as we happened to be driving. We get the people in, into the ambulance, and get them off as quickly as we can to shelter. Then I should say about 11 o'clock, all the lights went out. So now it's in darkness. And there's coming more and more until in the end, as you got the benches down each side, people were standing up in front of you for room for their shelter. And all of a sudden, I heard a thud. It was a definite thud. And then 12 minutes past midnight, the lights have failed. The city is now without electricity, gas, water, and many roads are blocked. Fires developing all over the city centre and uncontrolled. And the night continued with those survivors' testimonies nestling alongside the contemporary accounts and the passing hours marked by the fireman's log. At about 01.45 hours, I think it is, we hear the story from the perspective of a German bomber pilot. It's a simple construction, commonly used, a patchwork. The individual stories of real people cut together to tell a story that's bigger than any one of them could tell. The story's allowed to unfold in real time or a manipulated reconstruction of real time, leaving the sure world of journalistic objectivity and entering a personalised, impressionistic tapestry. The accuracy of the parts is subordinated to the truth of the whole. And a space is created, a space in time, 
where the listener can become part of the story. There's a dissolving of the focus that takes us away from the objective and the journalistic and towards a kind of reflection towards the heart that Piers Plowright spoke of, towards, dare I say, a poetry. Though in the Coventry Blitz, we do then return after the night raid to a position of presented radio journalism. Charles Wheeler becomes once again more present in a clip-link, clip structure. But in the medium of radio, how effortlessly we can slip between the conscious and the unconscious, between the prosaic and the poetic, between fact and fiction, from this place with its unique set of circumstances and motivations and consequences to another with its own separate world system. And radio is magic because it occupies or has the capacity to occupy a territory most akin to the realm of the imagination. In our imaginations, it's perfectly possible without coming over all Andre Breton or Salvador Dali to leap between realities or even inhabit two realities at once. For example, in this, uh, my next and the penultimate point on the Sertanin's uh, curve, uh, a dramatic monologue. <clears throat> this unfolds through any number of states of mind and body and physical presence. It's called Crush. It was written by Jill Adams and broadcast in the drama showcase The Wire on BBC Radio 3. It was produced by Kate Rowland, and she's the head of radio drama, so it should be good. It exploits a fast-changing duality of real time as events are experienced and the thinking time that exists in the protagonist's head. She, Maria, is an unmarried teenage mother condemned to a life of poverty on a northern housing estate, a project. But her inner life is anything but defeated or lonely. It's populated by various presences, both real and fantasy, and by her own relationships, above all with her son, Robbie. Oh, can tell me what I want to hear. Can you, Mum? Will you, Dad? What about Robbie? The Robbie my Robbie is named after. What about Robbie Williams? Can't you write us a good song? Don't say I love you. Say I respect you. Keep your school knickers on. Yeah, yeah, does Robbie care? Do you? Well, I want to make you. Currently fashionable to suggest to mothers that they delay going into hospital for as long as possible by having tea, cleaning out cupboards, or wandering around the house. In general, however, I think it's wise to say that, especially with second babies, you should err on the side of caution and make your way to the hospital as babies can come very quickly and surprise you at the end of the stairs. I know how I'd have the video. Me, Maria. I'm the girl and I love being a girl. But I'm sex mad, right? So I'm there all innocent looking, but then when the beat kicks in, I become this sexy devil child, a sort of cross between Pamela Anderson, Madonna and Baby Spice. 
And I don't know whether it's all that blondness with bad attitude or what, but it shocked them in a way that they need to be shocked. In a way that I'll have them thinking, my God, they know this much. What else do they know? And I've been thinking about what I'd say if they asked me, right? If they wanted to interview me because of the video, I'm mean, knowing so much. And I'd think about Madonna and the Virgin Mary. And I know they would be bad and sad. And I'd say, we're just, we're just the lambs of God, Dad. We're just fallen angels, man. But I don't know if they asked me now, I mean, right this minute, I'd, I'd probably say... Why do you think? Why do you bloody think? Because I'm a beep slag that likes to be beep. Then I'd look at me mum crying without me dad's arms round her. Me dad, blood red and sweating like a pig. A big, fat, embarrassed pig. And I'd smile and look at me mum and ask her. I'd say, did it hurt you an old man when me dad shoved his thing in and made me? Did it hurt you an old man? Once when my dad was out and she was checking his lottery ticket for him, I asked her what she'd do if we won. She said it was my dad's ticket, but if it was hers, she'd try and save all the starving babies. She'd use the money to build them homes and feed them and love them. But there was no point in talking like that, because my dad would want to buy a racehorse and a flash car, and he'd probably blow it all showing off. That's when I looked at her. And she was crying without any sound. Her tears were rolling down her face and into her mouth and she tasted her salty tears and said nothing. But I knew why she was crying. She was thinking about all the babies and I was just thinking about my Robbie. And I still didn't tell you, did I, Mum? Maybe I was waiting for my dad to be nice, like I know you must still believe he can. Because why would you stay with him? I laid in bed that night and thought about my poor mum and what she'd do in front of all them cameras they have in them television studios. How she'd probably have constant hot flushes and shake a lot. She'd probably run away or fake fainted. Even though my dad wouldn't catch her, she'd still do it anyway. She never has the right words to say. She never knows what to do. She watches too much Jerry Springer and it's made her suspicious of people. She's like a scared rabbit, my man. Caught in the headlights and frozen with fear. And my dad would probably grab me and shake me and shake me till my teeth rattle and my eyeballs pop out. And I'd say to him, what are you shaking me for, dad? There is no baby. The baby is gone. Or are you shaking all that badness out of me? Why do you always spray food at us when you spit your bitterness out, Dad? Why don't you say, come here, I want to stroke your hair? Why do you glare at me, Mum, and slam the door? Why do you moan about money? And comb your hair in front of the mirror above the telly. Even when you know we can't see. And it's on the news. And it's my robbing the phone. 
first taste of fresh chewy. Always nice and minty. That stays nice for very long, does it? Crush, a monologue starring Lucy Beaumont as Maria, fantastic. And it's the only acting, really, in, in this afternoon's presentation. The writer Jill Adams gets right inside the head of her character, and as that clip reveals, the production takes us expertly, I think, from scene to scene as inner life and outer life collide. It's drama, it's made up, but that doesn't stop it being true. And this brings me back, after our long curve around a number of issues and ideas, back to an aspect of radio's uniqueness, what I began by calling its adventurism, um, but actually its impressionistic quality. Impressionism, it's not a very happy term, too much of an ism, but it does convey something of that wish not to approach a subject head on, but to observe it from the side or from many sides at once. To trace a story not from A to Z, but starting from Q and ending at V by way of F and Z. To capture an image through squinted eyes that make the shorelines of a form shimmer and dissolve and reveal a different shape, a differently nuanced story. Much of this music I know has precious little bearing on our day-to-day -day actions. The clip link, clip link. And nor should it. I'm not proposing that we make impressionistic radio in every form. Impressionistic news? I don't think so. I like my news austere and unadorned. But I am proposing that we allow ourselves and influence our commissioning editors and paymasters, and they do know who they are, to allow ourselves to listen more to what the medium itself can offer and what it can offer uniquely. This, un this locking into the consciousness of the listener in a real linear time that allows you then to take them on a curve. And so to finish, the final point from Chicago, Knoxville, Coventry, a slight detour to the old country, and to New England, three places in New England. This is a kind of companion piece to Knoxville, summer of 1995, a Yankee cousin. I made it last summer, 2000. Again, the primary source is an existing piece of music, and again, the subject is a place, or a triptych of places. Three Places in New England is an orchestral suite by Charles Ives. It was composed in the teens of the last century. It's instrumental music, no vocals, no text, except that each of the three movements is prefaced in the published score by some words, a poem, an inscription from a monument, a descriptive paragraph. And each movement resonates with personal and philosophical associations for the composer. The places are Boston Common, General Putnam's Camp near uh, Ives' hometown, Danbury in Connecticut, and Stockbridge on the River Housatonic, where Ives spent his honeymoon with his enchantingly named wife, Harmony Twitchell. <laughs> A word about Ives, and forgive me if I appear to be lecturing you on one of your sort of American treasures. He was born in the 1870s into a respectable New England family. The, the Ives family had founded the town bank, and though Ives' uh, though father himself actually was a bit of a free spirit, rather bohemian figure, obsessed with music, running the town band and church music, often failing to make ends meet without family help. Charles inherited his father's musical adventurousness. His dad had organized the 4th of July celebration that climaxed with bands approaching the center of Danbury from opposite directions, playing different tunes and colliding just as the church bells rang out. And Charles, the son, 
later composed the same effect for the concert hall. It's a kind of joyful, ecstatic cacophony. But Charles also inherited his grandfather's sober and responsible work ethic. He went to Yale, then to Wall Street, and by the end of the First War, his insurance business had blossomed and he was able to retire early, a multimillionaire. He lived in relative modesty, composing music between business meetings, I think during business meetings sometimes. He was a weekend composer and a champion of the new and the challenging, Ruggles and Cowell, Schoenberg and Webern. At the cutting edge, though actually on the margins of musical life, the only way he could get a performance was to hire the musicians himself. From our perspective, he's now considered one of the founding fathers of modern American music, up there with Copeland's just a bit more rugged. And my interest was in his, both his philosophy and in his technique. His style was all-embracing. He used battle hymns, popular songs, church music, dance, band tunes, as well as music from European classical tradition. He was a Beethoven nut. And so as well as composing his own music, he inventively incorporated these elements, quotes, impressions from other sources. If you like, he was an early champion of sampling, cutting and pasting different musical elements and moods into a new, all-encompassing experience. And philosophically, he was all-inclusive. Emerson and Thoreau feature strongly in his thinking. He held all the stuff of life in high regard, even the low. Not for Charles Ives, the refined snobbishness of a Samuel Barber. In the music for three places, he deals with three aspects of his philosophy. The first movement's an, an homage to the St. Gordon's Monument on the Boston Common dedicated to the black regiment of Colonel Shaw, equality and freedom. In the second, he revisits a 4th of July experience from, uh, from childhood at Putnam's Camp, a chaotic jamboree of memory and music, so the innocence, the independent spirit of childhood. In the last, the focus is on personal relations, his devotion to harmony, that's his wife, not musical consonants, and to a quiet contemplation of the scheme of things, the eternal design. Fertile ground for an adventurous, musicalized sound text type crafted feature. Evocations of time, place, character, and philosophy. And again, in the production, an attempt to present all of these elements at once. Musical performance, each movement is heard complete, but not necessarily unadorned. Biography, documentary detail and a soundscape of the places, including scraps of other music. And the attempt to do this was in the manner, or a manner that was congruent with Ives' own style, to reveal a thread of meaning, of truth that exists out of time and out of place. And in collecting and sifting the raw material, I was always listening for the musical, as, as well as the everyday resonance of sounds and speech. To finish then, here are the final, movement, final movements of three places in New England. We're by the river at Stockbridge, in spirit at least, with Ives and his wife, and also with a Bostonian artist, Emily Buchanan, sketching the landscape, and other voices variously touched by Ives and his music, musicians, locals, admirers. The Housatonic at Stockbridge, then, now, and for all time. It's almost like when I paint, I get into a bit of a trance or a rhythm, and it just happens. 
contented river, and yet overshy to mask thy beauty from the eager eye. week after getting married in 1908, Ives took a honeymoon walk up in Stockbridge and other places in southwestern Massachusetts along the stream, which he relates in his own words very evocatively about the early morning, the mists on the water, the quiet stream, the flowers, and then by coincidence the sound of a church choir singing across the water and it was through the mists an absolutely Debussy type impressionistic moment which Ives captures in an American impressionism that is unparalleled. is the spiritual presence that's always there for him. She was a beautiful woman. Now look at how beautiful Harmony Twitchell was. A lot of visitors think there's a resemblance between her and the other picture to the right of it is his mother, Molly Parmalee. They tried to have children on their own and she had severe health problems. They eventually adopted a young girl, Edith, and uh, she became their loving daughter, and I thought they had a very happy relationship. I don't know if she mothered Charles the way he wanted. I think it's very telling that seldom in all of Charles Ives' writings that his mother is ever even mentioned. I've felt that all of his music, the more it was about something in particular, the more universal he saw it as well, because the more you were getting to real human events and people's feelings, the more you were at the base of all humanity, and so he was quite sure that his music could approach universality by being very specific to uh, what he knew best in people and experiences. Tis not in the high stars alone 
nor in the cup of budding flowers, nor in the red breast's mellow tone, nor in the bow that smiles in showers, but in the mud and scum of things. There always, always something sings. Charles Ives, fellow traveller, I think, on a journey through car- curved time, and just hold that sort of last line or two from Emerson. In the mud and scum of things, there always, always something sings. Thank you for listening. We've got time for some questions, even though it's now three o'clock. Um, <clears throat> So I guess if anyone wants to take the stand, if not, we can have tea, which might be preferable. (laughs) Wise choice. Should we have tea? (laughs) Yeah, if I may just quickly, you have so much texture to your work. I'm just interested, technically, when you create that, do you work entirely digitally and do you really utilize multi-tracking? Or to what extent could you do the same thing in analog and should you? Well, I started off making analog programs and running four or five tape machines and atmoses in loops and dropping things in and thinking, oh, that's all right because we couldn't possibly redo it so it was okay for broadcast. (laughs) Um, No, no, it's done digitally, uh, Sadie, now. Knoxville was done on Sonic Solutions, which is American Apple Mac system. Um, whereas now I've got to say it in, we do it that way. There's a great danger, of course, that you end up kind of getting lost in the machine. Um, so I still like to think, oh, that'll do. <laughs> yeah, <pretty good>. Tea. <laughs>